0: The following program, The Inclusive Voice, is sponsored by Diversity MBA Media and to the extent applicable, their guests. The views and opinions expressed therein do not necessarily reflect those of Newsweb Radio Company or its management.
1: Good morning. This is Pam McElvang. I'm your host of The Inclusive Voice. We're live today. Call in at 773-763-9278. You just heard the mainstream media news. Now I'm here to share with you a little bit of diversity news before we get into our show. And one of the things I want to talk about is really the impact of environmental consequences on the global tragedies around the world. And I know some of us really aren't linking climate activists To to racist activists, racism and what's happening today. So I just want to make a connection. For some of you that aren't familiar with Greta Thunberg, she's become the target of the backlash after many other representatives of what we call Fridays for Future, the global climate movement. They came out to support the Palestinians in Gaza and urged a ceasefire, fi- cease not just because of the tragedies that are going on as it relates to uh, human life, but because when you start to destroy the, the environment, the actual ability for people to live, um, olive trees, for example, that are endangered in conditions and having destruction, like in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, the mining of cobalt, the things of the, that's at their epic center that helps these countries, these regions around the world survive the environment is uh, breaking it down when you're looking at climate activism. And so when you're linking this destruction to what's happening that we're faced with today, human and environmental suffering, unfortunately, is becoming so intertwined and intersected. It's really blowing up our our, um, our nation and our sense of, of, of responsibility. So that's some of the just the, the, the news briefs I wanted to share how important when we think about what's happening in activism around both climate and around initial issues where we talk about human equity and human life are completely connected and that we can pay attention when we're taking action. And so with that this morning, we are really excited that we're going to lean into the conversation and talk about you know, what's happening truly within corporate America, within the workplace, within schools, and what folks are doing around anti-racism. And, they, and primarily what they think they're doing that is a good thing. We actually are in the, the position of baby steps. You just heard briefly where it's true the Democratic Party are relying on the loyals of the the ignorance and the supremacy and homogenous and, and all that stuff of, uh, of, of uh, Donald Trump to win. And we know there's much more that for both sides, each party needs to step up and lean in or we're going to be leaderless here in this country. But this morning... I'm going to shift. We're going to be talking um, to an expert that is going to be able to share with us and give us insights around what racism really is, how it is manifesting and what we can do about it. And this. I want to just preface this before we go to break and say this is about education and awareness this morning. It's really not about blaming anyone, but it really this show, The Inclusive Voice, I want to reemphasize this. We talk about some of these sensitive, controversial issues to bring awareness, to in, bring information to inform you so that you can make decisions that are informed and, and have opinions, you know, that are uh, based on some some information and facts so with that we're going to go to a quick commercial break we're going to come back with our guests i'm really excited we're going to tell you who but we're going to come back with our guests stay tuned with us and as i say always go grab your coffee and come back and call us in and listen to the have any questions that you may have at 773-763-9278 wcpt 820 am we'll be right back with you
0: breakthroughs aren't just for medical journals there to help people hold their grandbabies for the first time. Expertise isn't just for awards or recognition. It can be what gives people the best chance to walk again. At the Freighter and the Medical College of Wisconsin Health Network, people are the driving force behind everything we do. So we never lose sight of what's important. And we never forget who it's for. Because in the end, we're people helping people. That means every breakthrough, every clinical study, every interaction is to help people like you, your family, and your neighbors be the best they can be. We do everything possible because we see everything possible in you. To find out how compassion motivates world-class care, visit Freighter.com.
2: The world is embracing a remote, globalized, and diverse workforce. Is your organization prepared when it comes to understanding all the nuances of diversity? Diversity MBA can help. From an industry-leading journal and web publication highlighting professionals and best practices, to boot camps and conferences featuring noted and accomplished speakers, Diversity MBA is a driving force in diversity, equity, and inclusion education. Check out diversitymba magazine.com and take the first step towards transforming your organization.
1: Well, good morning, welcome back. I'm your host, Pam McElveen with the Inclusive Voice. And this morning, today's guest is author, activist, and educator. I'm gonna I'm gonna have fun with this. Salita. <laughs> Shrivastav, and I'm going to be saying her name a few times this morning because I want to make sure it's right. So, good morning, Sarita.
3: Good morning. I'm happy to help out with the pronunciation. I know it's challenging. Uh, Sarita yeah. is fine. A lot of people call me Sarita. The uh, Hindi pronunciation is Sarita. So, ah. Sarita, Sarita, either is fine. Thank you so ah. much for for the effort. No, we're going to keep that, Sarita.
1: Sarita. I'm going to practice it all morning. But, Thank you. Um, Sarita, so what do you, what do you, one of the questions I ask in the morning is, you know, what do you do um, to keep yourself both mentally and physically well?
3: That was not the first question I was expecting. <laughs> Uh, I'll tell you, I have. That's a big challenge for me, like for many of us with challenging jobs. So i um currently in the acting VP academic for a arts and design university, and where I am uh, was for many universities, we're facing we're public university, public institution, we're facing major problems with t- deficits and budget cuts and so on. So it's a very intense job. So for me, the most important thing in terms of Attempting to find balance, because I can't claim that I found it, is connection to community. That means my own children, but really more my extended chosen family of community. So the women that are my longtime friends that are also uh, single moms by choice, as I am, for example, or that are raising kids on their own or that are also working in the arts or working or also writers or uh, people that are trying to do things in the world and that are a source of mutual support and also fun um, that are always, we're always uh, there to talk about the work difficulties, the difficulties with our kids um, and to remind each other that we have to find a moment to just have a night uh, to drink a glass of wine or sit around and chat about what's going on that's to me that's and then the same to find the same thing actually to develop those same connections and communities in my workplace is also really important to me because that's a place that we to be honest spend the most time in my life right now and to, re, to remember that finding those places of moments of joy and connection and team building at work that's something I'm very intentional about um, and it's important to me because I'm in charge so to speak of a you know number of staff it's really important to me that they also find work a place that that is uh, has has moments of joy for them and connection so um and silliness um and fun so we're always talking about uh team building moments and, and and activities that we can do together and just ways to make it more fun um for the staff and for all of us so that i i truly find work even though it's very stressful uh, a fun place. It actually brings me energy and joy because of the relationships that I work on building at work.
1: Well, very good. I mean, <laughs> that, that, that might be that educator in you to give us that well-defined um, explanation. And and, and the, the only thing I'll add is intention. One of the things a lot of my colleagues say, you know, you have to be intentional, even though you have so much on your brain to do um, yes. about doing it. And one of the... Uh, we're holding... Um, uh, we're hosting our first, what we call DEI Collaborative Design Thinking Summit in Charlotte at the end of this month, where okay. we're going to be training leaders around the country. And we have an expert in that's going to be, who's been on the show many times, Z Clark. She's, do, she's the author of... Um, Breathe, black like people breathe, but it's really you can put any. It's really breathe people, breathe people, breathe is where she can have it. But she does this thing called breath at work, and so I'm going to share with you that in the midst of your crazy, just step, just stand up, step away, take 30 seconds or 60 seconds, and breathe from your diaphragm. Close your door, close your eyes. You have any music, and take a few breaths, and then reset, and then go back into it. Mm-hmm. and i do it every hour
3: for 30 you know, seconds there's actually an app for that on my watch <laughs> but, you, but you gotta do it you gotta use it though okay you got okay. oh, it okay come on this I, you're reminding me i used to use it when i first got that watch it had a it's a lovely little uh, flower appears and a little bit of okay. motion on your wrist and it says breathe and it's lovely and it would remind me to breathe it's a basic meditation practice it's, it it really is yeah.
1: And yeah, she studied it in India, so it really is. I was is. just
3: going to say, it's part of my roots that meditative practice, and I try okay. to connect with it. But it's we forget. We know we know these tools, and yeah. we we do them out for a while, and then we forget them, and that's why we need actually community and connection <laughs> <laughs> to so remind there each other. No, there you remind- go.
1: There you go. There you go. So I just want to let, just say, you know, I, I'm not one to really read a lot of bios and things like that. We're going to talk about your history, but I'm going to share with our listening audience a little bit of your background because I think it's important that they, uh, you know, that you don't miss some of the things that I want to say. <laughs> so so I, I'm going to, uh, you know, take a few moments, you know, to let you know. Currently, um, I am taking a, a a course for you guys, and, you know, she said, you know, Salida, so I can call her Salida because it's easier for you to understand, but Shirvasu uh, is her last name. She's currently professor of sociology and dean of the faculty of, art. she's actually interim, right? Right now you're doing an interim.
3: I'm VP academic, but my permanent job is dean of arts and science, yeah, okay. dean of the faculty VP. of arts and
1: science, yeah. And she's the director of the Global Center for Climate Action. Um, at the uh, Academic Design University in Toronto. And her research, I just want to talk, and she'll talk about this too, but this is why uh, this the conversation we're having this morning, you know, includes social movements, race and emotion. And in her Mm -hmm. work, you know, she's she's done national environmental campaigns, um, you know, around the globe. So the conversation and the expertise that we have here this morning, um, folks, is really... I think a position that we can learn. She's also, you know, as a sociology professor, gender studies, you know, so she's been able, she's able to align the intersections of diversity, the many dimensions, right? There's 64 dimensions of diversity and bring those forward and bring able to bring the global connections around the world. And so she has, she's author of this incredible book. And I don't want you guys to, to be confused. But to really understand the depth of what we're going to be talking about a little later, are you calling me a racist? Why we need to stop talking about race and start making real activist change? So this book, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to tell you, we're getting ready to create a movement here, at Diversity NBA, with your book.
0: Because oh, wonderful. You hit
1: it because you hit it. Right, you know, right there at the center of it all. So, before we get into all this, but I wanted folks to kind of just hear about who you are. Tell us a little bit about your background. You know, where you grew up, how you decided to go into education. Um, and give yeah, us a little sense of, of, of your and your choice of study.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's a little bit of a. Oh, I like to tell the story because it's I think inspiring sometimes for young people who don't know. Where they're going and where they're, you know, from where they're started. So I actually started in science. I have an undergraduate degree in science, and I realized it wasn't for me, and I moved from there slowly to environmental studies. Then I became an environmental activist. I was a national campaign organizer for Greenpeace, and when I was there, that's when I began to think about uh, organizations and anti-racism and diversity. We have, I realized, we had this idea that progressive organizations are. Progressive through and through. And we we sometimes don't think about how the relations of power, inequitable relations of power that are out in society are still exist inside all our organizations, despite the best intentions, despite strong commitments to equity and collectivist organizations inside an organization. Well, any any progressive organization, we still see uh, racism, sexism, and so on. So we saw that in the civil rights movement, that there was a lot of focus on uh, on anti-racism and and fighting against uh, anti-black racism, but that there was critiques about sexism in the movement. We saw that in the feminist movement, there was a lot of focus on women's rights, but uh, there began to be critiques that there's not enough, there's no focus on uh, women of color and and racism, and it's sometimes very difficult for movements. To hold on to the to the various uh, ways in which. Uh, in equity relations of power work inside inside their own movements, not only like as a goal of their own movement, but actually how does it work in terms of our day-to-day? Who's in charge of the movement? How are we thinking about equity in terms of who does what, how we speak to each other, how we organize, how people get treated? All those things are still ongoing challenges for all our progressive organizations. So, and I'm including here universities and schools and, and places where people are really committed uh, at heart to equity. We're not talking about uh, most My book is really not talking about places where people don't even believe racism exists and don't care and are outwardly, blatantly racist. Uh, really what I'm talking about is places where people acknowledge it's a problem and really want to make a difference, but nevertheless are reproducing uh, the, the, the problems, uh, age-old problems, and can't find a way— to fix that, they use the same tools over and over, and yet there isn't much effect. So that's what I learned from that experience of being a Greenpeace. And then out of that, I decided to do a PhD so, in sociology, studying uh, r- uh, diversity and anti racism in organizations. And that's how I came to, to write this book and became a sociology professor and did that for many, many years, loved it, supervised graduate students. Um, uh, in at, at, at Queen's University. And then, you know, you get to a certain point in your career, people start contacting you and say, have you thought about being a dean or and so on? And of course, I actually hadn't thought about that. It's really interesting, which I think in itself is interesting because there are very few universities where, we, you know, we're seeing that starting to change, but there are very few universities that are run by or that have provosts or VP academics or deans that are women of color. And so we don't see ourselves in those positions of leadership, never think about ourselves as I'd honestly never thought of myself in that way. And when Mm -hmm. someone said, we'd like to recruit you, would you please apply? Uh, It's at at an art and design university in Toronto that I work, Ontario College of Art and Design. Look it up. It's got a very cool building designed by Will Alsop, um, of Toronto. It's very striking and an exciting place to work, and it really captured my imagination. So I was thrilled to apply and to be to be um, offered the position. And it's uh, been a really amazing coming together of all the things that I've done, which is write about, be an activist, write about a diversity in organizations, been a mother <laughs> and then yes. bring it, bring it to, <laughs> amazingly to realize how that's a really important experience of emotionally coaching and caring for your kids. And then bringing that to, to you know, to, to, to coaching and mentoring students and, yeah. About relationships in, in an organizational level, so I bring that all to my work today as a, an academic leader, and I just love it. I never would have predicted how how it's so different from the work I did before teaching in the classroom, um, being an activist, um, but yet all of them come together uh, and, and draw my academic expertise, too, um, in studying diversity in organizations for so many years. That's so, awesome.
1: That's great. So with that, we're going to take a com- uh, go to commercial break and come back and talk a little bit more um I'm with a good professor (laughs) Uh, about, about, you know, really the sociology of what's happening, you know, within the workplace, because at the end of the day, that's really what is going on and that's what's missing. Organizations, um, we have that gap, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. So stay with us. Go refresh your coffee. We'll be right back. Call in at 773-763-9278.
0: At UPMC, we believe care goes beyond our walls and into our communities, That's why we support organizations and individuals who help people prosper by giving them skills and training for employment, including right here at UPMC. Because life-changing is providing people a chance to grow. Learn more at upmc.com slash community impact. UPMC, life-changing medicine.
2: Don't let the tight labor market get in the way of your company's success. Open your mind to new ideas and open your enterprise to new workforce solutions. With Bold Business, companies can leverage extensive global assets and a lengthy track record of success in reducing labor costs. Don't let borders get in the way of giving your company the best possible workforce. For remote positions, Bold Business can save clients up to 30 to 50% with skilled and experienced candidates from a global talent pool. Head to boldbusiness.com for more information.
1: Okay, welcome back. You know, um okay, Sadita. <laughs> I'm just going to go here. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to, you know, uh, give, share with you, give you a little bio for me. I do have an undergraduate degree from uh, the University of California at Berkeley in sociology and social welfare. It stopped right there. That. But I do want to let you know, I did, you know, I did. I end up going the business route, right? The MBA in finance yep. and marketing. But it's just like, you know, you know, I, I got a little social touch there when you think yeah, about it. Yeah, great. But I, but on a larger scale, for 18 years, um, our, our benchmarking, diversity, um, MBA benchmarking, our Inclusive Leadership Index, we've um, been on an annual basis. We survey companies for the best places to work for women and diverse managers. But the reality, it's the... Um, it's the intersection of diversity strategy and talent management. So we've been capturing data and what organizations do inside. It's a very comprehensive 300 question roadmap. So you, you you're talking about diversity training and what's happening there in the organization, and while it's not effective, so I'm just gonna you know let you know you're gonna probably get some questions that you're gonna be like, okay, Pam. But, but we're going to yeah. have this real conversation, truly, in what's going on. But one of the things um, I would just like you to help define for people, just so that they're clear. People understand, you know, conceptually what is activist, but what's an environmental activist?
3: Well, that's a good question, because I think the important thing to recognize is that the environment is not just nature. So when we look at the sustainable development goals, for example, from the UN, they define sustainability on many levels. It's not just ecological, like n- nature, it's also social, for example. So when we similarly, when we think about an environmental activist, we have to think not just about, oh, that's just about nature and saving nature although that's really important but also thinking about how is it that this the as you talked about at the start of the show that we have to link the, envir- the environment with social justice and people use the phrase environmental justice for that to recognize how is it that for example the destruction of the environment has differential impacts on on different communities and that you know, we can think of that in many ways. You gave many examples yourself. Uh, you gave examples of geopolitical conflict today, but this has been going on forever and ever. In terms of, for example, even in the city that I live in, we know that the neighborhoods that are middle, you know, upper middle class have more trees, much more green cover. And so, when we look at what the effects of climate action will be, they'll be felt much more strongly in neighbor, in, in, in poorer neighborhoods and lower socioeconomic neighborhoods because of the uh, just simply that. Less green. Uh, where's, where are industrial? Um, where, industri- where are industries located? Where is toxic waste dumped? What's the impact on indigenous lands, for example, of of, yes. uh, f- of forestry mining? You gave those examples as well. So, uh, an environmental activist, <laughs> to go back to the original question, isn't necessarily just someone who's paid by an organization <clears throat> to to work professionally as an activist to challenge these things, but someone who recognizes. Uh-huh. Uh, these uh, injustices and uh, connections uh, uh, and works towards sustainability it could be locally in their community. It could be in their kids' school. I think we have to think about activism as To me, how I think about my life is, I do things that make a difference. It's why when I write the, for for me when I talk about the book, my book is, it's not up to me about how many copies people buy of my book. That's not why any academic or activist writes a book. It's to make a difference. And to me, being an activist, whether it's an environment, whether you call yourself an environmental activist or just an activist or social justice activist, whatever choose you, term you choose to use, it's about the, wor- the work that you do in the world to make a difference. And it doesn't have yeah. to be what people think of as, you know, yeah. an and,
1: and thank you for that explanation, because I think it's important that, um, you know, leaders understand that, you know, I sit also on a board called Gamaliel Foundation, and they have a, a, a national network of, um, of Both churches and different affiliates that are that are focused on organizing communities on the ground. Mm-hmm. So they they're activist organizations. So I call myself, you know, maybe a conservative activist in the back boardroom driving change. So there's all mm-hmm. kinds of ways people can can be activists. And you, when you talked about trees, you, you made it so fundamental. And, and we'll leave for a minute. But I was just thinking about my neighborhood, how they came, the city came in, and I'm in Chicago and replanted. Just on one strip, I think they probably put ten trees, and then my office is in um, it's in Roseland, which part of that community is um, is more of a under representation there. And right in front of my office, they put like four trees. They replanted four, and mm-hmm. then in my home community, they did mm-hmm. ten. So just something that simple, right? And just talking about where resources are and, 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 the economics alignment to that. So, so thank you for that example. That was really, really powerful. So, you know, to your, you were starting to talk about your book, you know, that is such a provocative title. So what did, you know, what was your intent, um, with, with naming, you know, the book? Are you calling me a racist? And and then really, you're talking about how people are chained, trained and being aware. Share a little. Share a little bit about your thinking and conceptualization that led you to this uh, this publication.
3: Yeah. Thanks for the question. So it came out of a, as I mentioned working in organizations that are committed to equity and social change, whether it's social movements, community organizations, universities, and over all those years working in those organizations and researching them, I saw the same contradiction that I mentioned when it comes to questions of diversity and anti-racism, which is this contradiction between good intentions on the one hand and weak outcomes on the other hand. So that's the central contradiction. So I'll get to the your initial question in a second, which is what I saw is that A lot of organizations devote a a great deal of energy and resources, sometimes millions of dollars, very often millions of dollars, developing diversity statements, policies, training, workshops. And yet, in my own experience and and also in research, uh, we can see that those policies and trainings are often ineffective and sometimes actually make things worse. So, for example, one one of the things that happens is the workshops themselves can become a site of tension and a conflict um, where there are defensive, ang- angry, personalized, or, or emotional reactions, such as, are you, are you calling me a racist? Now, that could be just really like a tearful reaction. Like, I feel so terrible that you would do that or, or, or angry or defensive. Um, so that's just, it's really just, as you say, it's just a title. So it's really highlighting one particular dynamic, but there are lots of other dynamics. They can go the other way in which people feel so connected to their identity of being not racist, that they're actually um, saying, I, f- I feel so terrible, I'm so racist, uh, d- deep introspection, deep guilt, deep empathy. I feel so terrible when I hear your stories of racism, so I feel tearful. And, and in all those cases, essentially what's happening is this energy that we could be diverting towards organizational concrete change is uh-huh. diverted towards introspection and emotion,
1: therapeutic talk, so on. Yeah. I- and, you know, and when you say that, you know, I, I, you know what I was thinking about when you were talking about some of the diversity trainings and, and how people were are, are emotionally feeling either good or, or not so good, is the unconscious bias. Companies take people through these courses, you know, and say, oh, now we have awareness around your biases and stereotypes and what you inherently do because some of it's hardwired yeah. and then some of it's now you know and, the, and then there you're left with saying oops i did that microaggression oops and, yes. you know and then you have these groups that are even more angry so yeah. so, so to your to your point that just triggered that and by the way companies spend hundreds of millions of dollars yes, yes, correct. in diversity <laughs> trainings. And companies, um, in our research, 100% of the companies say we do diversity training. And now yeah. they are the best-in-class companies are saying, hey, guess what? <clears throat> We've added race relations courses mm-hmm. to our now diversity training. So we are, and, and I'm going to say this and let you react to this <laughs> in your work, and, and mm-hmm. we are now... Offering this entire comprehensive curriculum on cultural competency, on, on generational, on unconscious biases, on white supremacy, on classism, on discrimination. All these courses, anti-racism, we're offering these. And guess what? Guess who's teaching the courses? White women white women are teaching the diversity courses and then guess what? The brand new author who had an experience who wrote a book and all of a sudden now is the expert. Not have done the decades of training that you are, are being hired and paid a bunch of money to do it, and that includes everybody, white men, white women and some people of color. So we have I'm not gonna I hate I'm gonna steal it from Trump just for a second. Okay, now I'm not going to steal Trump's word. (laughs) We have have so-called surface-level experts, that's what I'm going to call them, trying to teach what PhDs in psychology, sociology, and education are only ones prepared to teach in behavioral change, information, and now they leave with more tension in the organization. And because the organization doesn't know better – thinks that's good, and, and and can't understand why it's worse. So I'm going to now leave that with you to help talk about why the feel-good politics of race and unproductive and ineffective diversity training has got to change, and what to do about it.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly what my book is about. I think it's interesting that people keep repeating this. You say that people don't understand why it's, you know, they keep doing it. I think there's a few things. One is Uh, people may not understand a better way to do it, or they may not want to find a better way to do it because it's a very easy answer. We hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. People need more. Let's get more training. Let's get in a workshop in there. It's kind of a, it's a quick fix right we can hire someone get someone in here do it it's one day one afternoon and so it looks like you're doing stuff or it feels feels like you're doing stuff i don't i don't want to uh same thing about people's motives people may be very genuinely motivated to do it make a difference but they don't so maybe that they don't know or maybe that they don't want to do the really much harder work which is to examine your own practices where you are because it's not a one size of workshops a one size fits all Let's call in that person. They can do the same workshop in a zillion organizations. To actually change your organization, you have to look at your own organization and say, what is it about what we're doing that we need to change? What is it about the the way that we've always done things? What is it about our products, our services? It's a really deep and analytical project. So that's a much more difficult, much longer term, uh, you know, not clear and it's not clear how to do it. Kind of a project. And so that's one reason that leads us to this. Um, and the other is that we're really, really convinced that the answer to change is that we we don't know enough and so we need to learn more so just to be clear i'm i I am a professor so i believe in education for its own sake what i'm talking about is when we're trying to make change in an organization we think the answer is that we don't know enough so we have to learn more and a root of that is that we believe that racism comes from ignorance so therefore it's only ignorant people that are racist if people knew more <laughs> they wouldn't be racist and what we see is that people can learn more and more and more but that isn't the root of what is causing you know particular kinds of practices it's actually systemic there's actually right. simple practices that could change so it's one like oh I like to say is for example like if we waited to change the hearts and minds of people. If we were like, and we have to change the hearts and minds of people. We have to change their, their mind. Like, they have to know enough. They have to feel the right way. And then we can desegregate schools. <laughs> so we would never, like, n- none of those things, that, profound changes that we've seen, uh, you know, profound civil rights changes that we've seen would have happened if we waited yeah. to convince everyone, to educate everyone and to get everyone on board through workshops and training. We would still be in that place. Instead, what we did is we looked structurally. I shouldn't say we because I wasn't part of those changes. But what people did is say, to say there are some deep structural and legal impediments to equality. Let's change those and let's start to move forward you know, with, that, with those systemic changes made. And that's the kind of work that we have to do now. So now I'm not sure if I've answered your original question. Yeah,
1: yeah, you did. And actually, it leads to a whole other conversation. But we're going to take a a couple minutes and take a break. And feel free, folks, to call in and ask any questions at 773-763-9278. And we'll be right back to you right after these commercial breaks.
0: Breakthroughs aren't just for medical journals. They're to help people hold their grandbabies for the first time expertise isn't just for awards or recognition. It can be what gives people the best chance to walk again at the Freer and the medical college of Wisconsin health network. People are the driving force behind everything we do. So we never lose sight of what's important and we never forget who it's for because in the end, we're people helping people that means every breakthrough, every clinical study, every interaction is to help people like you, your family and your neighbors be the best they can be we do everything possible because we see everything possible in you to find out how compassion motivates world class care visit Freighter.com From
2: an industry-leading journal and web publication highlighting professionals and best practices to boot camps and conferences featuring noted and accomplished speakers, Diversity MBA is a driving force in diversity, equity, and inclusion education. But Diversity MBA's education push extends beyond the public realm and into the private sector. Thanks to DMBA, enterprises embarking on their DEI journey have access to training webinars, leadership indexes, and more, all of which can help educate and transform a workforce. Embrace DEI. Diversity MBA can help. Visit www.diversitymbamagazine.com for more information.
1: Welcome back. I'm your host, Pam McElveen, the Inclusive Voice, and I'm here with our guest, Professor Sadiza, <laughs> actually yeah. Um But one, you know, just to recap some of the things that you talked about. Um, so I have to, I have to say this to you. Well, first, I agree with uh, the folks that are um, a part of the training. I mean, I think it's all of what you said. I think some of it they don't know. Some of it is too hard, and some of it is it costs too much. And for the most part, companies have existing learning management systems that they just want to drop content in and create an environment where people are continuously learning. But mm-hmm. how you facilitate that becomes becomes another issue. Secondly, I want to respond to, so there are organizations that are doing it right? by the way, just so you know. There's some that have been highly effective in doing it, but it takes an incredible investment of time Mm -hmm. and it takes an an enormous commitment and a continuum of leadership accountability for it to happen. And so you, you now know with all those moving parts why everybody isn't, Successful all the time, mm-hmm. but organizations, corporations, I feel, almost have to look at themselves as a movement, particularly if you're very really large, because you kind of have everybody represented within that workforce and within that community, that external community that you're connected with. So, so it does take, um, you know, a long time for the kind of s- systemic change to occur within a culture. Mm-hmm. But then, when you went to the systemic legal impediments, I mean, you know, let's just talk about that for a few minutes today. Even among um, my client base, which is um, about a hundred companies, we these or these leaders are dealing with how to navigate the the increased risk that the legal department is saying, you know. Anything diversity is now becoming um, a challenge for us if it's not clearly defined that's inclusive for everyone and so you know it's kind of hard to do that mm-hmm. <laughs> you know if you've got this robust training platform yes. so, so when you talk about you know you know when you're talking about you know d- drive what organizations can truly do around um, driving change within their culture, as it relates to this very, very, very dynamic you know, issue around anti-racism, you know, what, what do you feel um, you know, some of the key things they must begin to think about changing or doing or accepting so that they can begin to deconstruct or reconstruct. Let me say let me use that word as a better way. Of the way they approach you know educating their their workforce and you know and helping them with behavioral change and acceptance.
3: I mean to me uh, so from my perspective, everyone, I, I think there's many ways to make change. so my particular perspective is not the only perspective. Behavioral change may be important as a focus in a particular organization. For me, I, my focus is on organizational practices and, uh, and concrete change. So I would say there isn't a one particular thing. We know that there's particular areas of organizational practice that could be how resources are allocated. How hiring is done, how services are delivered, how products are designed, how communications are made, et cetera. Those are like some key areas of every organization and looking inside those organizations and asking yourself, are these, do do we consider equity in each, in each, in each area? So it, it can be something very, very simple. I don't think it even has to be, as you say, there's, you know, to say that this, we're, we're creating programs for a particular group of people and not for others is, challenging, uh, and isn't necessarily always seen as equitable, but that's not the kind, there are many other ways to think about equity. You know, this, the example that I use book is very, very simple and straightforward, which is the example I'm sure you're familiar with about the two men that went into a Starbucks to, for a meeting, waiting for the third person to show up. By the time the third person showed up, they, they were handcuffed and arrested So obviously we know the story that the two men that were waiting were black. The guy that showed up was white and they said, we're not ordering something because we're waiting for our colleague to show up. And so the Starbucks person called the police. So, you know, someone filmed it. It went on social media and it became an international international story. So it happened in Philadelphia, but I'm in Canada. We all heard about it all over the world. And because we heard about it all over the world, Starbucks decided to respond. And now we know, you probably know the story of how they responded. They, shut, they, they spent $12 yeah. million dollars yeah. shutting down Starbucks for one afternoon. To do an yeah. anti-racist training where people watch videos about experience, what is racism and so on, and we could ask ourselves, you know, if that Starbucks employee had seen that video before this happened, would it have changed their actions or not? <laughs> you know, very unlikely because that was a very context-specific moment in which they probably didn't see it as connected to race at all. Yeah. You know, they were like, "This person's not ordering; they have to leave because we," etc., and not even aware of how their own fear and anxiety and, and, and racism were part of that decision. That's right. That's it's real. Starbucks did another thing, though, which is they said we have a new rule. And I don't know if they're still doing it or not, but you're allowed to sit in a Starbucks and, and without ordering something
1: and without getting arrested. Well, I can't tell you that one because I, I haven't sat in a Starbucks without having coffee. So.
3: <laughs> but I mean, it would, be, it would be so simple if you had a policy like that said, don't arrest people that don't order coffee. Yeah. But, which, it's, yeah. So, it's, you know, and, and when you think about it, you know. When
1: you think about restaurants, you don't walk into restaurants and have a seat and, you know, you at least are going to get a glass of water while you wait for your other guests so they know you're going to order. But even, you know, even mainstream restaurants, you don't walk in, coffee shops, you don't do that and have a seat, right? And the the expectation is that you're going to order something or why you're here. So to your point, racism was probably not even on the person's mind.
3: You know, it's interesting you say that about the walking into a restaurant because I had, I was, had a very long cab ride from an airport. Uh, I was going to give a talk at a university and the guy was asking me about my book and I was talking to the cab driver. He was uh, from India. And he said, whenever he goes into, he he really loves cuisine and trying new cuisine. So he tries out new, he talks to his passengers. They recommend new restaurants. He goes into these restaurants. He said he walks into the restaurant and half the time, the guys, the, the, the people in the restaurant go, uh, get, try to ask him what order he's there to pick up. And they assume he's a delivery person and that he's there to pick up an order. And he feels really insulted and he walks out of the restaurant. I was like, imagine if it was just, you know, you people got trained to treat all their customers <laughs> with a particular way you know particular standard greeting hi how can i help you <laughs> not like hey you're what order are you here to pick up you know based on how we're well, looking at the person and saying oh they, they they look like an uber driver or they look like a, a delivery person so it's just like there's a very very practical s- strategies that yeah. we can have whether we're talking about policing, or whether we're talking about restaurants, or whether we're talking about schools, or whether we're talking about hiring, right? This is the same thing with how teachers, uh, you know, we know so many studies about how teachers treat different students in different ways, whether it's boys, or whether it's black students, or whether it's, there's ways, there, there are practices that people can learn, you know, there are strategies that we can use. There are built-in systemic, uh, you know, ways of, for example, hiring. There are ways, you know, even in, for example, in auditions for, for music, for conservatories, you know, blind auditions, blind uh, uh, um, interviews, uh, reviews of resumes, for example. You, you I'm sure you know all the stories of that, or all the research that shows that uh, resumes where people assume that the name is of a person of color or a black person, this, those resumes are, are are less likely to get called for interviews. So are there ways that we could get around that by looking, you know, are there other ways versus standards, you know, strategies, rather than spending years training that person to think differently and look differently and, and to get rid of their Biases. Um, could we not just say here are some strategies that we have? For example, we have some strategies now where we ask the same interview questions of every single person in the mm-hmm. same order. We didn't do that years ago. We have you know strategies that say you can't ask a person, "Hey, I noticed uh, there's a big gap there. Did you have kids in that gap? Why did you spend so long doing your yep. PhD?" We have you know very particular things, uh, rules, and, and and frameworks that now feel very very normal for us but it didn't used to be that way years ago. And the, that's the kind of straightforward, standard, practical strategies that we need to keep looking into organizations in terms of how we design things, how we design our organizations, how we design products, who we serve, how do we think about who, our market. It, it could be at any kinds of questions. It will be different for every organization. But just yes. really questioning our own assumptions about how we do things and then thinking how do we shift it so that our – you know, our, our, our assumptions, our biases, our ways of doing things that actually structure the process to be more equitable rather than saying, how do we maybe particular, particularly serve this, you know, to correct this wrong with this community or, or learn more about this community? Um, because that's based on this idea of the co- this, this cross-cultural training you talked about. If yeah. we know more about a community, we will therefore treat them more equitably. I don't know. I don't think that's actually the research does not show that that's the case. There is a a theory that called the contact hypothesis that says the more contact we have with another community, another group, the less prejudice we will have. That actually is not borne out. It only happens under very particular circumstances that aren't really real life situations.
1: Yeah, it You have to have you you have to have uh, a longer term experience. So when they yes. there's a study that's about the expatriates, but you have a lot of experience. But I want to just touch on, because I agree, uh, I just want to go back to, uh, you know, when you talk about, you're talking about systemic change. So I really agree because we're doing some work around that too. It is organizational practices. It is organizational practice, policies and practices, because that's what people are actually, um, th- that's what they're They're making decisions based on what are our practice, what are our procedures in place. So anything that is designed, the organizationally designed within these companies in terms of how they do things is where you can begin to start the change. And then you have accountability that allows you to, you know, be able to address um, people that do not want to, you know, follow you know, the organizational practices and policies. Um, So I really agree. I absolutely agree. That is what's happening. And and the conversation, and I also want to say the conversation around sustainability because of ESG and the over um, trying to find, I call it the misalignment of DEI with ESG. But in terms of looking at where there is alignment Mm -hmm. possibilities, Organizations look at sustainability, not environmentally, but they're beginning to look and kind of understand a little bit about social sustainability and defining how that how that fits in to DEI. Um, where people can have a better understanding of what's going on, and of course governance. Governance has always been a part of it, uh, and because people understand governance as it relates from board mm-hmm. leadership and corporate leadership. So, so I do agree with you that the first level is that is 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 really happening, you know, systemically, and then being able to have initiatives and programming. The so one things I ask companies is, you know, how are you measuring impact? How do you know? After you've trained, you have attended your key performance indicators, we check the box and we had so many attend, so many that said, oh, you know, took the survey. This was a great, you know, it was great for 95% of us. But how do you measure the actual impact of what they learned and how that is manifesting in the organization? And, mm-hmm. and, and they don't know how. And and, mm-hmm. and some of that until the until it happens again. Did we train on that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so why are you doing that again? So now they want all the nugget training so people can they do believe it. Let's program the mind
3: to mm-hmm.
1: go back and look at that five minute video so that you yeah. can or audio so that you can remember not to do this. So yeah. it, it is, it is a, a lot of work. But I do like to talk about, um, you know, the way you're approaching it and, and breaking it down, breaking down you know, the diversity training component to the larger scale of where organizations need to, if they just reexamine, you know, that piece of it, that would, you know, to me, that's significant. Um, So before we um, go to commercial and have our last few minutes, I want to ask you, let people know where can they go and find your book and more information about the work you're doing.
3: Yeah. So it's uh, released. Uh, the release date is March 19th, but you can pre-order it on Amazon. That's probably the easiest place to get it. <laughs> um, so if you go on Amazon and type in, are you calling me a racist? Uh, the book will come up and you can order it. And there's, I think Barnes sets on the Barnes and Noble website as well. So there's, uh, if you just type it into Google, it'll, I'm sure all the spots that are near you where you can order the book will show up. It's New York University Press. So you can also order it directly from NYU Press as well.
1: Great. And then I was wondering, I was like, how come I don't have my pre-book copy? I, was like, I always oh. have my copy. Because <laughs> the release is on March 19th. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I
3: said, okay, that's why I don't have the book in front of me. <laughs> I was like, where's the book? I always you know what, ma'am? I haven't received my copy yet either. So
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that, 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 that is, that's, so, um, that's so exciting and I, to, to have a new book. Uh, Uh, perspective on on what's going on and what's doing so what what would you offer what advice would you offer to our our listening community anyone in the workforce that really wants to do something to minimize anti-racism feel safe and comfortable in speaking up without offending someone else what are a few things people you would advise people to think about or can do to take action
3: in other words, if they're in an organization, they see things that are disturbing them and they want to say something, but they know that people might say, are you calling me a racist and how to... Yeah. How to how. Well, and community and
1: community too.
3: I mean, not yes. just in you know, everywhere, no matter where Absolutely. you are. <laughs> Absolutely. Like this could happen in your book club, in your kids' school, anywhere. This is, these kinds of dynamics are everywhere. So, uh, the key message, one of the key messages of my book is that I think that this work is always too much based on the individual. In other words, we, our practices, our workshops are, are all about the individual, looking inwards, educating the individual. And partly that's because we see this problem of racism as an individual problem. Like there's just some bad people. So racism is ignorant people. You either are ignorant or you're a bad person. and uh, We don't see it as systemic. And so the same thing happens when we speak out, when we see someone do something where there's this tendency to call out that person. So this term microaggression, I think, uh, perpetuates this idea that it's like that person is being uh, it, it's, it's happening in this micro moment and that person is being aggressive or bad or mean or whatever on purpose. And so then that's, that's where we focus our attention and that's what creates all this. We see this all the time in organizations. This becomes this interpersonal conflict that then mm-hmm. a conflict resolution person has to come in or there's a complaint process or a grievance process, the grievance process against the individual. So I would say my key advice is you know, to try as much as possible to sidestep that interpersonal conflict and calling out as a way of dealing with those issues because it's not n- not necessarily that people didn't have bad intentions or didn't do bad things but it's not going to get us much further in terms of yeah. shifting our organization or our culture or our, our relationship building so instead focus on uh thinking about what's the how could i fix, prevent this thing from happening again rather than calling out that individual and i have to tell them you know what's the ways and you know ways that we could sh- talk about things differently do things differently um yeah. is there some way so for example if Maybe there's people at work that are always commenting on people's inappropriately on what, what people eat or their appearance or things like that. You know, like make, uh, could we think about a code of conduct that talks about um, how we comment on each other's appearances? What's yes. appropriate at work or not? So, I, in my workplace at university, a previous university, that was one of the things. And I thought, hmm, I like talking. I like talking about people what they're wearing and their appearance. And then I realized, no, it's actually a really good reminder. That you have to be very careful about the relations of power that mm-hmm. are in that moment of commenting on someone's appearance. It makes me made me very aware of awesome. how careful one has to be. So that's a very simple, simple example of can you think of a way of which this could be prevented next time?
1: Excellent. So, thank you so very much. So, everyone, you just heard from the good prof- <laughs> from our good professor Sadita Shrivasu, from from who's a sociologist, climate activist, right? Author, educator, really environmentalist, really someone that you can learn from. Get this book. Are you calling me a racist? why we need to stand up stop talking about race and start making change that is bigger than ourselves. We want to thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, You guys can go to Amazon. That's probably the easiest place to order the pre-order the book. And we will um, look forward to having you back again next week. Thank you all for listening and being a part of the call. Thank you so much, Sadita, for being a
3: part of our show. Thank Absolutely. you so much for inviting me. I learned so much, and it was such a great conversation. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Devin, for being there and manning it. I'm Pam,
1: the, your host for Inclusive Voice, WCPT, 820 AM, Professor Chicago Progressive Talk.